This is lecture number 14 in the Book of Kings by Dr. Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number 14. We spent the entire session last time on the first two subpoints under the work of Elijah and Elisha. That's on page 2 of your outline under Ahab, and that's number 2, part D, which is the work of Elijah and Elisha. And number one is Elijah's first appearance, and that's in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. Number two is the widow at Zarephath, and that's verses 7 to 24, again in 1 Kings 17. Now, I deliberately took a lot of time on those two sections to try to illustrate a redemptive historical approach to that material. As you recall, I work primarily utilizing ideas from M. B. Vant Veer's book, My God is Yahweh, which is a discussion of Elijah. As was noted, we're on page two here of our outline. We have a long way to go, and we only have two sessions left. What I decided I would do is not to discuss the material further in great detail. I want to make a few comments, though, but just a few. I will not discuss further, to any great extent, the work of Elijah and Elisha. We'll just push forward down the capital E at the bottom of page 2. That's Ahab's part in the Battle of Karkar and shortly thereafter. But before doing that, number 3 is Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18. I think that is probably the most familiar chapter in all of the Elijah narratives, where fire comes down from heaven. I don't want to take time with that tonight. Three or four is Elijah's flight immediately after the victory at Carmel. That is three and four in the outline. And this is when Jezebel threatens Elijah. He flees in fear for his life, and he goes to Mount Horeb, which is the same as Mount Sinai, and that's in chapter 19, verses 1 to 8 of 1 Kings. Then you have 5, which is Elijah at Mount Horeb. I just want to make a few brief comments about this, and that again is in chapter 9 of 1 Kings, verses 1 to 18. You remember when he gets to Horeb, there's the bringing of the wind, there's an earthquake, the fire and then what is called a still, small voice. I think that the purpose of that is for Elijah to understand that God does not always operate in spectacular ways. Notice, Elijah is very discouraged. Of course, God did operate in a very spectacular way there on Mount Carmel. But when God causes the wind, the fire, and the earthquake to pass before him at Mount Horeb, you read this in verse 11. The Lord said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? If you'll remember the time at the burning bush and go way back to the time of Moses, 
God was in the fire in the bush. During the manifestation of God to Israel at Sinai, he was in the thunder and the lightning, these powerful manifestations of himself. But here it's not the spectacular phenomena in which God was present, but there was the still, small voice instead. What the Lord does then is commission Elijah to go back to Israel and to do three things. And I think it's worth noting what these three things are. In verse 15, he says, The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Now that's number one. Number two is, Anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And third is, Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. So the three things that Elijah was told to do is, anoint Hazael, anoint Jehu, anoint Elisha. Now when, when we go into the narrative of the kings further, we find that these three things were done, but perhaps not in ways you would have expected from the commission that Elijah heard in Mount Horeb. I'd like to look forward and just mention the way in which these things were accomplished. The first one to be accomplished was the last one that was mentioned, and that is the anointing of Elisha to succeed Elijah. The others were carried out subsequent to that, and you find the accomplishment of that in Second Kings chapter 2, and since I'm not going to discuss further Elisha's life and ministry, you might just take a look at Second Kings chapter 2. Chapter 2 is where Elijah is taken up to heaven. Elisha seems to be aware that Elijah's departure is imminent. In the second verse, see, Elijah says to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha replies, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and they went from Bethel to Jericho. And in verse 6, Elijah says to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, that is Elisha, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on, and Elijah divides the water of the Jordan with his cloak, and they continue walking on. Then in verse 9, I want you to notice verse 9, here's what it says. Tell me, this is Elijah speaking to Elisha, what can I do for you before I am taken up from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replies. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I am taken up from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. Well, the question is, what was Elisha asking for when he says, Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit? I don't think Elisha is asking to be twice as effective or twice as good as Elijah was. I think the expression, a double portion, relates to the laws of inheritance in Israel, where the eldest son received the double portion. And I think what Elisha is asking by using that terminology is to be the successor of Elijah. And Elijah says, you've asked a difficult thing, yet if you see me when I'm taken up from you, it will be yours. Of course, Elisha did see him, and when Elijah was taken up to heaven, Elisha picks up his mantle. He goes back to the Jordan, and the river parts for him, just as it had done for Elijah in prior time. It seems to be a demonstration that he is, in fact, 
Elijah's successor. This is a fulfillment of that third commission to Elijah to anoint Elisha to succeed him as prophet. But it wasn't carried out precisely literally in the sense that there is no record of the pouring of oil on Elisha, anointing him in that sense. But certainly, in this sequence of events, Elisha is shown to be the true successor to Elijah. There's another verse in this chapter that I want to call your attention to, and that's verse 12. Again, we're in Second Kings chapter 2. When Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, you read that a chariot of fire appeared, and horses of fire appeared that separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. But verse 12 says, and I quote, Elisha saw this, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Now, this expression, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, what's he talking about? I think the expression is often misunderstood. I don't think the expression has anything directly to do with these horses and chariots of fire that took Elijah up to heaven, at least not directly. Of course, they come in close together in the context in that sense. But what's the meaning? What is he saying by this expression? I think what he is saying is, Elijah, you are the strength or the bulwark of the nation. You see, Elijah is taken up to heaven, and Elisha cries out at that time, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elijah was the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Not, of course, in the physical sense of the word, but the strength of Israel was not in their military establishment. The strength of Israel was in their allegiance to the Lord, and in their trust in the Lord and their obedience to the Lord. And Elijah was calling people back to obedience and to covenant faithfulness. So Elijah then was the bulwark, the strength of the nation, the chariots, and the horsemen of Israel. I think it's clear that that is the point. It has really no direct relation to the chariots that took him up to heaven. I think it's clear that that's the point because the same thing is said later of Elisha. When he dies, if you look at Second Kings chapter 13, verse 14, you read the following. Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. And what does Jehoash say? My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha is described with that same expression. And of course, Elisha wasn't taken up to heaven in a chariot. And so it seems to be that that's the significance of the expression, and it is certainly a significant idea. You see, the strength of Israel was not reliant on her military establishment. The strength of Israel lay in her obedience to the covenant of the Lord. Elijah was the one calling Israel to the obedience of the covenant. He was the one, in the true sense of the word, that was the strength of the nation, not the number of chariots that Israel had. All right, but that's Second Kings chapter 2. That is the fulfillment, or carrying out, of the third of those three tasks that were given to Elijah at Mount Horeb. In Second Kings chapter 8, verses 7 to 15, you have the accomplishment of the first of those three tasks, and that, you recall, was the anointing of Hazael as king of Aram, or Syria. In Second Kings chapter 8, of course, this isn't done by Elijah himself. 
It's done by his successor, Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 7 and following, you read this. Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was ill. When the king was told, The man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Hazael, Take a gift with you and go to meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him and ask, Will I recover from this illness? Hazael went to meet Elisha, taking with him a gift, forty camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus. And he went in and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, Will I recover from this illness? Elisha answered, Go and say to him, You will certainly recover. Nevertheless, the Lord has revealed to me that he will, in fact, die. He stared at him with a fixed gaze until Hazel was embarrassed. Then the man of God began to weep. Why is my Lord weeping? asked Hazel. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. You will set fire to their fortified places, kill their young men with the sword, dash their little children to the ground, and rip open their pregnant women. Hazael said, How could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? The Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram, answered Elisha. Then Hazael left Elisha and returned to his master. When Ben-Hadad asked him, What did Elisha say to you? Hazael replied, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, and spread it over the king's face, so that he died. Then Hazael succeeded him as king. So again, you see, you don't have the carrying out of this with the formal anointing of Hazael. But Elisha tells Hazael, The Lord has revealed to me that you will be king. Then Hazael takes it upon himself to assassinate Ben-Hadad, and he succeeds him as king. Hazael was an oppressor of Israel, as under the Syrians, Hazael attacked many of the northern sections of Israel in subsequent times. But that's the fulfillment, then, of the second task. Well, the third task is fulfilled in Second Kings chapter 9. Here Elisha commissions one of the sons of the prophets to go to anoint Jehu king over Israel. And you read of that in chapter 9. Notice verse 3. Elisha says, Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. Don't delay. And then down through verse 13, you've got the description of the accomplishment of that feat. Jehu then conspires against Joram, or Jehoram, who is king of the north, who was king at that time, and you have that very important revolution of Jehu, in which he kills Joram, as well as Ahaziah, who was king of the south. He then wipes out Baal worship and establishes a new dynasty in the north. And so that is the accomplishment of the third of those tasks that Elijah received from the Lord at Mount Horeb. Three tasks are given to him at Horeb, and then subsequently we see the way that those three things were carried out. Not exactly as expected, but still fulfilled. Now, as I mentioned, I'm not going to discuss the rest of these subpoints under Elijah and Elisha, so let's go down to capital E under Ahab, and let's talk about Ahab's part in the Battle of Karkar and his death shortly thereafter. 
I'm sure we are all familiar with the fact that the northern kingdom went into exile in 722 at the hands of the Assyrians. The Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom and conquered it in 722 B.C. Now that's a long time down the road from the time of Ahab. But prior to 722, numerous Israelite kings had encounters with the Assyrians. In other words, there's a long history of struggle between the northern kingdom and the Assyrians prior to the time of the fall of Samaria in 722. Ahab is the first Israelite mentioned by name in Assyrian writings, and that reference is made by Shalmaneser III, who in one of his inscriptions says that he defeated a coalition of kings in a battle on the Orontes River. The Orontes River is in northern Syria. Up in that area, Shalmaneser says he defeated a coalition of kings in a battle there, one of whom was Ahab. He's mentioned by name as having contributed forces to that coalition of kings. Shalmaneser says that, and I'm quoting from the monument, Ahab the Israelite contributed 2,000 chariots and 10,000 foot soldiers to the coalition. Hadad Ezer of Damascus contributed 700 chariots and 700 cavalrymen. So you see, the king of Damascus contributed significantly less than Ahab did. Now, that's a very significant battle. However, it's not mentioned in the Old Testament. In the account of Ahab in the Old Testament, there's absolutely no mention of this great battle between him and the coalition of kings against Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria. But this is a very important event because, even though it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, by certain way of calculation and reasoning, it becomes a rather important event for establishing absolute dates for the chronology of the Hebrew kings. What I mean by that is this. We have relative dates within the Old Testament text. We know that a certain king reigned a few years, and then the next king 15 years, and maybe the next one 3 years, and the next 40 years, etc., etc. So we know how long each of these kings reigned in succession, following each other in both the north and in the south. But the question is, as far as getting an absolute chronology, at what point can you hook the relative chronology to what you find in the Book of Kings into something that gives you a fixed date for an absolute chronology, i.e., such and such a date, B.C.? So you can say the revolution of Jehu we just talked about a few minutes ago, that it's dated 841 B.C. Well, how do you know it's 841? How do we get an absolute date for things like that? Way back in the beginning of the course, I asked you to read an article by J. Barton Payne in the Zondervan Bible Encyclopedia. I think you've got some idea of some of the problems and ideas of chronology. Also, you're running into this now, particularly in these last reading sections, because some of the real problems are in the later kings as far as dating is concerned. Now, I'm not so concerned that you follow all the reasoning down to the details, because it's complex, and you really have to work at that to follow even the discussion in the expositor's Bible commentary to understand what's going on with chronology. But let me read you a page or so from Edwin R. Thiele's book, A Chronology of the Hebrew Kings, concerning the Battle of Karkar, or Karkar spelled with a K. You can spell it either Q-A-R-Q-A-R or K-A-R-K-A-R, 
And this is very significant for the absolute dating of the kingdom period. I'm reading on page 29 of his book, and it's sort of a popularization of a larger work that he wrote called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. And he sort of distilled that down to this little book that is called The Chronology of the Hebrew Kings. Unfortunately, this little book is now out of print, but it's very useful if you can get a copy of it. But on page 29, he says this, Primary importance in establishing the dates of the kings of Assyria is the Assyrian eponym list. Well, you come across that term, the Assyrian eponym list. This is a list of important officials after whom the years were named. You see, that was the custom for the Assyrians. Our custom is to give an era date. That is to say, for example, this is 2012, and this is the 21st century. The Assyrians would give a name for the year, and they would give a name of either a king or high official or some known person, and they would just assign his name to that year. The name is an eponym. And so you have this eponym list of all these names, and each name stands for a year. That's the Assyrian eponym list. Now, continuing with what Thiele says. This is a list of important officials after whom the years were named. It was the custom to name each year after some officer of state. This might be the king, a field marshal, a chief cupbearer, or high chamberlain, or the younger of an Assyrian province. The man after whom the year was named was the eponym. And the year was the eponymous year. Thus, if we have a consecutive list of eponyms, we have a consecutive list of Assyrian years. The fact that the Assyrians preserve lists of eponyms is of major importance in the accurate reconstruction of Assyrian history. Such lists are in existence for the years 892 to 648 BC. Now, that's a long period of time. These are long lists of names for every year from 892 to 648. Continuing now, and these years overlap much of the period of Hebrew monarchies. Of particular interest among the eponym lists is the number of tablets that give not only the name of the eponyms, but also their titles and positions and the principal events during the various eponyms. Such lists are available from 853 to 703 BC, so you not only have this eponym list, but you have important events that occur within these years from 853 to 703. And these constitute what is called the Assyrian eponym canon. So the year when Ur-Sadalu, governor of Luzanu, was eponym, see that would be an eponym year, Ur-Sadalu would be the name of the year, and he was the governor of this place. But for the year that Ur-Sadalu was eponym, this record states, there was a revolt in the city of Ashur. In the month of Simanu, an eclipse of the sun took place. Astronomical computation has fixed this date as June 15, 763, because it mentions that in his year there was this eclipse. Astronomical calculations can tell us what year that would have been, but contemporarily and mathematically you can count back and determine the date. This notation is of immeasurable value for Assyrian chronology. For the date of Ur-Sadalu being established in 763, every other name on the list can likewise be fixed. 
and that is from Teeley's book. You see, they go backwards and forwards chronologically from this date and tell what year this is. So, of course, you can tie that year into an eclipse. It is thus that we have absolute reliable dates for each year in Assyrian history from 892 to 648 because you can work from that astronomical calculation into the eponym list and from that get fixed dates for this whole list of years in Assyrian records. Now, let's get back to this thing, and I'm quoting Tele again. A major importance for establishing the names of Hebrew kings are certain eponymous years that were in connection with the Assyrians and the Israeli history. One of these is the eponym of Dayan Ashur. The date is 853 of that eponym year. The sixth year of Salmoneser III, in which he fought the Battle of Karkar in the Mediterranean Empire, against a group of western kings, and one of whom, Ahab of Israel, is named. Thus we know that Ahab was alive at 853. Twelve years later, in the eponymy of Adad-Mimani, which is 841, this is the 18th year of Shalmaneser III, Assyrian records say that Shalmaneser received tribute from King Yahu, who was ruler of Israel. And that is spelled I-A-A-U, Yahu. Scholars have long identified this as Jehu. Thus, in 841 B.C. was thus recorded a key date in Israelite chronology. According to Assyrian chronology, it was 12 years between the sixth year of Shalmaneser in 853 when he fought against Ahab at Karkar. And according to Hebrew chronology, it was also 12 years between the death of Ahab and the succession of Jehu. That is, two official years, or one actual year, for Ahab, and twelve official years, or eleven actual, for Joram. Thus we have 853 for the year of Ahab's death, and 841 is the year when Jehu began his reign. Which also means the Battle of Karkar had to be in the last year of Ahab's life, because of the twelve years. But that gives you two fixed dates in Israelite chronology. Of course, once you get those fixed dates, you can work within the chronological system of kings to get other dates. And those are really the hooks in which Old Testament absolute chronology rests. And that is from Thiele. Now, I realize that sounds a bit complicated, and you may have to sit and wade through his book, but at least it gives you some idea as to how we get absolute chronology in the Old Testament by looking at the overlapping Assyrian historical records. Now, the only way you can get back to the date of the Exodus is to work from these points back to the fourth year of Solomon's reign, and that's in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, which we are told was 480 years after the Exodus. So then at 480 years, you get back to the Exodus, that is 480 years back from the fourth year of Solomon's reign. And then from the Exodus, you have to trace the links of the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and basically work those chronologies back to the patriarchs. And of course, you can get them back to Abraham using internal biblical data. You can get earlier than Abraham because you don't have enough history for chronological calculations prior to Abraham. So maybe that throws a little bit of light on how we do chronology. I know that I mentioned that here under Ahab's part, it's this Battle of Karkar, 
which for the reason becomes rather a significant event for Old Testament history, despite the fact that it's not mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, as far as Ahab's death, it seems like things must have moved quickly in that last year of his life, because he's in a coalition of kings and fighting the Assyrians. But you remember how he died. He died when he went up with Jehoshaphat to fight against someone who was another member, probably, of that coalition of kings who fought against Shalmaneser. He fought against Ben-Hadad, the king of Damascus, latter part of his life. That's in 1 Kings chapter 22. I don't know if we mention his name, but he was the king of Aram. That is, Ben-Hadad is the king of Aram. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 22 and read verse 19, you read the following. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his thirty-two chariot commanders, Do not fight with anyone small or great except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, Surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned and attacked him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel, and they stopped pursuing him. Then someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor, and then he died. Now, I thought it was Ben-Hadad, but it doesn't seem to mention him in this chapter. But chapter 20, verse 1, Ben-Hadad attacks Samaria. I think that that's who it was. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 1, it says, For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel, but in the third year Ahab joins with Jehoshaphat against Damascus. But in any case, it seems that what happened is that perhaps Ahab is trying to avenge his lack of success against Shalmaneser. Shalmaneser claims a victory in the battle in 853, that battle of Karkar, but how much you can trust what he says is certainly open to question. After all, these kings like to boast a lot. Doesn't seem like there's any striking victory. He didn't come down and occupy territory any further to the south. But certainly he must have turned back this coalition. But whatever went on there, it may have weakened Damascus that enabled Ahab to think, well, I can at least get some territory back from Damascus that Damascus has taken from Israel. So we'll start with Gilead. So within that year, it seems that Ahab joined with Jehoshaphat, and they went up and attacked the forces of Ben-Hadad to try to recover remote Gilead, which, of course, is in Gilead. In spite of the warning of the prophet Micaiah that was ignored, exactly what Micaiah said would happen happened. Ahab was killed. All right, let's go on to the bottom of page 2 and then to the top of page 3 in the outline, Ahab's sons. And you notice I have two subpoints. He has two sons who ruled, Ahaziah and Jehoram. First, Ahaziah in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 40, and then 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 18, and that's paralleled in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 25 to 37. You read in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 51, after Ahab's death, that Ahaziah began to reign in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat in Judah, and he reigned two years. This was a short reign. He continued the policies of Ahab, his father. 
For we read, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, because he followed the ways of his father and mother, remember that's Jezebel, and of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. And then in verse 53 we read, He served and worshipped Baal and aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as his father Ahab had done. Now, there are a couple other things that we know about him. He attempted to establish a shipping alliance with Jehoshaphat. You read about this, I think, in last week's assignment. It ended in disaster when those ships were destroyed. That's in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 48, where we read, Now Jehoshaphat built a fleet of trading ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never set sail. They were wrecked at Etzion Geber. And then in verse 49 we read, At that time Ahaziah, son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my men sail with yours. But Jehoshaphat refused. Ahaziah died, and this overlaps into the book of Second Kings, after a fall from a roof of his house. And that's where he sent to Baal of Ekron to see if he would recover. Now he's confronted by Elijah, and he seeks that revelation from a heathen deity, and is told that he will die. And that's in the first chapter of Second Kings. Now he had no son. You read that in verse 17 of Second Kings. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah has spoken, because Ahaziah had no son, Joram, or Jehoram, succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. You notice there are two Jehorams here. And so he had no son, and his successor was his brother, Joram, who then was the son of Ahab, not the son of Ahaziah. I know this gets complicated, but give me a break. I did not name these people. So, that's capital B, Jehoram, or Joram, and that's 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 to chapter 9, verse 25. The reason I go so far is you have inserted here a lot of material about Elisha and the Elisha narratives. But Joram was another son of Ahab, and you read in verse 2 of chapter 3 that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. It seems with Joram there is improvement over Ahab and Ahaziah. We read that he got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sons of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which had caused Israel to sin. He did not turn away from them. So he got rid of that sacred stone of Baal, but he still followed the false worship of Jeroboam. Now, he invited Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom to join him in fighting Moab, who had rebelled against the control of the northern kingdom. You read of that in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Second Kings. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled. And so over in chapter 3, you find that Jehoram invites Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom to help him in fighting against Moab. And they were successful in that battle. But then later, in another battle in which Ahaziah of Judah joined with them against the Syrians, he is wounded. And that's 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 29. Well, verse 28 says, and I'm quoting here, Ahaziah went with Joram, son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Aram, at Ramoth Gilead. The Arameans wounded Joram. So King Joram returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him 
at Ramoth in his battle with Hazael, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to see Joram, son of Ahab, because he had been wounded. So he goes to Jezreel to recover after that battle against the Syrians, but while he's there, he's attacked by Jehu. Remember, he's been anointed king. That's what we talked about earlier, where Jehu had been told by that son of the prophet that he would be king of the northern kingdom. And Jehu then conspires against Joram, and he becomes king. He kills him, and Ahaziah, from the south, is killed at the same time. Now, that's a significant event, because both the king of the north and the king of the south are killed simultaneously, and that's 841 B.C., and they're both killed at the hands of Jehu. Okay, capital E on your sheet is Judah under Jehoshaphat and Jehoram, which is almost parallel to the dynasty of Omri in Israel. So we move to the southern kingdom of Judah. Always, you see, it parallels the dynasty of Omri. Judah under Jehoshaphat and Jehoram almost parallels the dynasty of Omri. So capital E really parallels capital D as far as time is concerned. We just have to move back and forth, which is what the scripture does as well. We go forward in history, in a way, in the northern kingdom, and then we come back to the southern kingdom and pick that up. And then we move forward again with the northern kingdom, come back to the south, and that's the way we do the history. Okay, it's probably confusing enough, so let's take a break before the next lecture. This is lecture number 14 by Dr. Robert Vonoy of Biblical Theological Seminary on the Book of Kings.